Section 23 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Soul and Body, Part 5. The beauty of his body is beyond what art has ever dreamed, and it is a beauty only to be discovered by eyes which have been touched with the special euphrasy of heaven in order that they may know God's beautiful things when they behold them. Its beauty is a joy in heaven at this hour, and what must beauty be which can gladden the blessed there? The immaterial angels gaze upon it with astonishment and delight. The saints yearn after it until, in some spiritual way, they become shadowy likenesses of it themselves. Theology does injustice to art, and yet must be allowed to go unblamed for what it does. It cannot help itself, it is a necessity of the eyesight of its science. It turns from the loveliest divine babes of Raphael, deeply wounded, almost angry, only dissipating its anger by clearing its heart with tears. So dishonourable, even unlovely, we must say, are all pictures of the holy child, compared with that colourless, unoutlined vision of him which theology sees always in her mind. But what have the lines and colours of earth to do with the beauty which is a magnet up in heaven? Its likeness to Mary is something more than part of its exceeding beauty, and it is a characteristic of it which we must never fail to notice. Part of the mystery of her greatness is in that adorable similitude. At the first God communicated his image to man, now woman communicates her image to God. Who does not tremble at the mention of such incomprehensible condescension? whose heart does not burn with joy at the thought of what his mother was allowed to do, of how much spiritual nearness and of how many deeper similitudes is not this likeness the symbol and the sufficient evidence. Oh, wonderful to think of, the little white lily is blooming below the greater one, an offshoot of its stem and a faithful copy, leaf for leaf, petal for petal, white for white, powdered with the same golden dust, meeting the morning with the same fragrance, which is like no other than their own. God copying his own creature, creation has seldom had a sight so fair to see. But the urn full of blood, the urn of flesh, within that body is the most wonderful of all. Doubtless there were other hearts of newborn babes in Bethlehem that night, which measure for measure might be of the same dimensions as his own, and with the same curves of the common human heart as his, and the blood in them was dear to him, and allied to his, because it was soon to be poured out for him in cruel martyrdom. But there was no heart like to his, and there was no good in any heart which was not there because of the good that was in his. But that infant heart which sent forth the tears he shed, which gave the tone and impulse to the sighs he uttered, which played upon his lips in smiles so full of meanings for Mary to interpret, which rose and fell during his wakeful sleep. It was one of the greatest wonders in God's creation. Its adoration was worthy of God. It was a more gigantic choir of the divine praises than all the stupendous worlds of which God is master. The impetuosity of its littleness wrapped the majesty of God round about in the strong embraces of its worship, it sang more songs than all the angels, and sweeter songs, and they were more divinely sung. It kept more lamps burning before the throne than there will be spirits and souls in heaven when it shall be fullest. Nay, 
They were fires rather than lamps, unquenchable watchfires round the uncreated fire, and not unseemly in their exceeding nearness to it. It could offer oblations in some sense equal to God himself, and matching his immensity. Its love was a very living shadow of the Holy Ghost. Itself unconsuming, it consumed all things else in honour of the Most High. It had more love of God in it than all the love that God gets elsewhere, outside himself. It had more love of man in it than there is elsewhere in the world outside of God. It confused nothing and forgot nobody. We were in it. We had our own place in it at that very hour. It rested in us, yet it rested nowhere out of God. It reposed upon our little returns of love with a repose more real than our love, and yet which was unreal compared with the tranquillity with which it reposed in God. Its love of Mary was its nearest approach to rest in creatures. Its utter rest was only in the deep will of God. The blood that went and came, that ebbed and flowed, in that heart-shaped urn of flesh, what volumes might not be written of its grandeurs? By it alone is accomplished the whole spiritual chemistry of the regenerate earth. It washes away the foul taints of an unclean world, and defiles not its own rosy brightness in the washing. It dilutes and neutralizes all the poison of creation, and absorbs no poisonous qualities itself. It transfigures what it touches, it glorifies where it falls, it deifies that which it rests upon. Its miracles are the most prodigious of all miracles. Their instantaneous conversions are almost incredible. It hides itself in sacraments in a manner which the highest science is unable to detect. It acts upon the substance of the soul with the keenest and most spiritual transmutations. The more it sheds, the more it has to shed. The more it has to shed, it distills freely out of the glorious veins of heaven into thousands of chalices every day yet the veins bleed not, and no one sees it fall. The sacred heart sends it at each pulsation to the uttermost ends of creation, and it returns momentarily as pure as when it left the heart, but laden with booty for God's glory, so plentiful that it seems to encumber heaven. It must communicate itself. This is the blessed necessity of its life, as it is also so adorably the case with the full life of God. We are always wet with this blood, it is perpetually falling upon us. We leave the marks of it on everything we touch. There is the stain of blood upon our whole Christian life. It is this which makes life so awful, because it is such an endless deifying of what is human. We are so marked with it that our guilt in the crucifixion is brought home to us beyond a doubt, and yet it is just those stains which are our acquittal. We weep because it has been shed, and we do well in weeping. Yet, if it had not been shed, we should all have wept eternally. His flesh is hardly a mother's armful, yet, by an astonishing miracle, it is the food of all other flesh in the grand sacrament of the altar. It is our Lord's body with which we have most to do on earth. It is his body which is prominently worshipped rather than his soul in the blessed sacrament. It is his body preeminently which is trusted to our keeping, and which resides abidingly amongst us in tabernacles made with hands. It is his body which we ourselves spiritually are, for his church is truly his body, and it is this which makes the condition of schism so blighted and forlorn. He touches us by his body, feeds us by his body, makes us one by his body, yea, makes us his body. It is the hand both of his soul and of his divinity, 
the hand to baptize, the hand to confirm, to absolve, to communicate, to anoint, to marry, to ordain, the hand that touches and does the miracles, that takes hold and lifts up, that points the way and leads on, that strikes those who deal over lightly with it, and that heals so often with the compassionate roughness of its blow. That infant body is shrouding its glory as we gaze upon it, but that is no trial to our faith. We see the glory there for all it makes itself invisible. But there is one thing wanting in the infant body, one thing which may make us slow to recognize it for the same as the body in heaven. It wants earth's seals. It lacks the five wounds to which it clings so fondly as to retain them on its throne, not for our reproach but for our everlasting jubilee. The infant body needs thus to be more earthly in order to be more manifestly heavenly. We have done. The union of this body and soul in the sacred humanity of our Lord, a nature with no personality of its own lying under it, supplying it with a human self-consciousness. It lies upon the person of the Word, not inertly as the whole helpless creation lies in the sustaining hand of its almighty Maker, but united to the divine person and instinct with richest life. Exuberant in its own nature, it is exuberant most of all in its divine union. Such is the sacred humanity. Its perfection is in the union of the body and the soul. We have seen that it is acknowledged and worshipped as their head by the angels who are of a different and superior nature. The likeness to it in glory is the end to which all that is high and holy among men is tending. It is capacious enough to satisfy an eternal desire of the eternal word. It is the greatest world of all the worlds, the central world of the divine decrees. By the separation of the body and the soul, exclusively and precisely by that, the passion was consummated and the atonement made, and by the reunion of them in the resurrection, and exclusively and precisely by that, our justification was completed. He died for our sins, says the Apostle, and rose again for our justification. As the magnificence of God is in his unity, so the grandeur of creation is in its unities, which shadow forth the unbeginning unity. Second among these unities is the union of our Lord's soul and body. There is no other such union in creation except that greater union belonging to them only and belonging to each of them by which they are both united to the person of the Word, and of this union the Holy Ghost was the principle it was his fecundity outside of God, who had no fecundity within God, and thus did the fruitful spirit carry on outside of God that free divine life whose necessary course was closed in his own infinite and eternal procession. From this dread thought comes one thought more. Inside the most holy trinity it is equally divine, equally adorable, to produce, to be produced, or not to produce much more, therefore, to create or not to create were in God equally adorable. Thus we gaze with astonishment upon this world of the sacred humanity, the magnificence of the hypostatic union, the resplendency of our Lord's human soul, the energy and beauty of his body, the sublimity of their union, and the natural impersonality of them both. We see with amazement how all these things are mixed up with God and how God would be unknown and inconceivable without them, and how the whole of his external glory is implicated in them. Yet were they, and with them all creation which hangs like pendants from them, to wither away and dissolve and be effaced 
in its own original nothingness and divinest oblivion to cover it all. The whole system might drop from God as the ragged silver mists drop from the sunrise and melt into nothing and go nowhither, and his grandeur would arise the same and shine into itself, pouring into its own bosom all its splendour, and upon its brightness there would be no vestige of the vanished worlds, the lost creation. The ruin of things would be but a fresh flash of his magnificence. The loss could in no wise attain his grandeur. The threefold solitude of the old eternity would come back again, and he would have been immutable all the while. Oh, what must thy grandeur be, O God, in whose light the greatness of the sacred humanity thus pales to nothingness? But let us turn back, like frightened children, to that mystery of love. It is no show, no festal pageant, not a brightness followed by a darkness, not a glory that can pass away. The Eternal has become a little babe. That will now be true eternally. The incomprehensible lies infantine and smiling joyously on the lap of an earthly mother who loves us more dearly than our own unselfish mothers ever loved us. She gazes on him, so do we. It is flesh. That light is out of an infant's eyes. We, with her privileged by faith as she by sight, watch the pulses rise and fall. We listen to the beatings of his heart. It is all flesh and blood, beautiful exceedingly, mysterious exceedingly. We lean over, we stoop down, we feel his warm breath against our faces, we kiss his living lips. Mary would have it so. It was she who taught us to be venturesome and free, and who, if not she, would know his will. Verily, it is all flesh and blood. Are we not disquieted to do great things for him? It is the wonderful, the terrible, the all-knowing, the unbeginning God who lies so little and so calm on Mary's knee. It is the infinite Creator, blessed a thousand times for his uncreated majesty, and now equally a thousand times for his created littleness and lowliness and loveliness. It must be the masculine effort, the persevering strain of a lifelong dependence upon grace, which alone can rightly honour the all-holy babe, the almighty little one, the eternal child, as well for the mystery of his gentleness as for the exalting faith, whereby, with our hearts upon our lips, we can say with the church those few tremendous words which make the angels and archangels to bow down, and the strong, bright thrones of heaven to totter and to tremble in an adoration which blends fear and joy in one. Et incarnatus est de spiritus sancto ex Maria Virgine et homo factus est. End of section 23